Hi, welcome to the Quipster Film Review Podcast. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, so you can read all of my written work there at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast that looks specifically at films of the 1980s. It's called Around the World in 80s Movies, and you can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. It's kind of appropriate, given today's film, to talk about movies of the 1980s, because the film I'm going to be talking about, it's a new movie, but it takes place in the 1980s, and to some extent, it's patterned after films that came out in the 1980s for reasons I'll get into during the body of the review. Wonder Woman, 1984. It's a PG-13 rated film for sequences of action and violence. The runtime is... A whopping two hours and 31 minutes. Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, Pedro Pascal are the main players. Robin Wright and Connie Nielsen also contribute a couple of small roles, at least at the beginning of the film. The director is Patty Jenkins, and Jenkins also writes the screenplay along with Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. Now, the inspiration to do Wonder Woman 1984, obviously because the first film was a big hit, they were going to do a follow-up, but the reason to do it in 1984, specifically came from the minds of director Patty Jenkins, as well as her co-writer Jeff Johns. Both of them happen to be pretty big fans of the Superman series of films, the 1978 Superman film from Richard Donner, as well as its sequels throughout the 1980s. And they wanted to do a superhero film very much in the style of those movies, like Richard Donner and Richard Lester did, at least in those first three Superman films. In fact, Johns, he happens to be a veteran and a very prolific writer for DC Comics, including Superman, over the last couple of decades, and he considers Richard Donner's 1978 film Superman to be his all-time favorite movie. In fact, it led him to join the entertainment industry way back when he took a job as Richard Donner's intern early in his career, and the rest is history. If you measure Wonder Woman 1984 by what the creators intended to make— this is successful. It's a superhero movie every bit as campy and heroic as the ones that were made when Superman was still a viable franchise, back in the 80s anyway, and Wonder Woman with Linda Carter was on television. Wonder Woman 1984, it gives us those colorful villains who, like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor, seem to fail upward. They're bumbling buffoons, they have character flaws, delusions of grandeur, and they find their way into wealth and power somehow. The power they wield is perilous because they revel in getting back at the world that made them their doormat for most of their lives. However, for as noble an effort as Wonder Woman 1984 is to give audiences this kind of throwback, I would say it's kind of a failure because audiences today, first of all, they may not recognize the intent and Many who do recognize it may not necessarily feel that it's warranted. What most audiences wanted was a continuation of the successful formula of 2017's Wonder Woman, and they're likely going to be frustrated by this being shoehorned into this older superhero formula that might have worked in the early 1980s when Hollywood really was kind of feeling its way into how to make a big blockbuster superhero movie except to inject them with a lot of romance and comedy, rather than for audiences today who are very sophisticated about their entertainment surrounding cowls and capes. Another issue is that Richard Donner's original Superman was a success in basic storytelling. It showed us in under two and a half hours of screen time, Kal-El's infancy on Krypton and his exodus from there to Earth and his childhood with the adoptive family, the Kents, 
and his discovery of his ancestry and his powers and his occupation as a newspaper reporter and his romance with fellow reporter Lois Lane and the rise of his eventual nemesis in Lex Luthor, all the while building into this cataclysmic finale. Wonder Woman 1984, it gives us the length of that film, but kind of leaves us wanting here. We start with an action sequence from Diana's early childhood that really has next to nothing to do with all of the rest of the movie that follows. And then there's this other extended action sequence right off the bat in a shopping mall that also has very little need to be in the film from a narrative standpoint. Whereas Superman seemed to have a clear direction all throughout that film. Wonder Woman 1984, the narrative through line is haphazardly clung to, sometimes non-existent for long stretches of the film. And it's also a few minutes longer than Superman in telling what little story it has to deliver. As I mentioned, the film opens up with that lengthy sequence from Diana's childhood on the hidden island of Themyscira, competing in games, testing her strength and endurance and her resolve against other women who are, well, actually full-grown, twice her age. What does this have to do with the rest of the film that follows? Well, not really a great deal. Maybe there's a life lesson that didn't need to be told really to us to understand Diana's outlook on right and wrong, but it's certainly there as foreshadowing, I suppose. And then we flash forward to the so-called present day, well, it's present day 1984, to deliver this film that probably could have been set in the present day 2020 and achieved a lot of the same outcome, except for there's some nostalgic feels. You got some 1980s music in here, some wardrobes, some Cold War politics. And here's where the storytelling begins to fail the franchise here. We see Wonder Woman in action at the shopping mall. We don't really have any explanation about how she got the name Wonder Woman and when we then see, shortly after that sequence, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman's alter ego, working in her occupation as a, an anthropologist at the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C. I don't know why anyone doesn't see that this stunningly beautiful and statuesque woman with this unique accent is a dead ringer for Wonder Woman. Nobody seems to be putting two and two together there, and she hasn't aged in three quarters of a century. I mean, how does she get away with that? I guess we just have to use our imaginations because nobody else can see what we can plainly see within the course of this film. So we learn that despite the passing of nearly seven decades that Diana is still pining, no pun intended for the Chris Pine character from Wonder Woman, the American spy from World War One that she barely really knew, Steve Trevor. No other man has ever caught her interest in all the time that has passed since because Steve has become her all-time soulmate in her mind since he sacrificed himself for a greater good, as witnessed in the first film. Her lack of social life is what allows her, I suppose, to spend her off hours putting her superpowers to use in righting the wrongs of the world. Not that she has made much of a difference since the world of 1984 in this film seems identical to the one that actually existed without Wonder Woman having been in it since the Great War. Now, the prolonged armed raid of the shopping mall reveals a jewelry store used as kind of a front to fence valuable but stolen ancient artifacts that are subsequently brought to the Smithsonian for Diana and her team to identify. And that's where we meet the newly hired Barbara Minerva, a mousy gem specialist with self-esteem issues played by Kristen Wiig. She's particularly self-conscious around the self-confident and beautiful Diana Prince. In particular, one artifact does stand out here, this very phallic piece identified as the Dreamstone, which is a crystal of myth once believed throughout ancient history to grant wishes on its owner, or people who happen to have it in their possession at the time, 
cavalierly, Barbara makes a wish. She wants to be more like Diana. She doesn't know that also means more like Wonder Woman as a byproduct. Diana makes her wish for, of course, Steve Trevor to be back in her life to continue the life they never got to spend together. Overnight, Barbara's confidence has begun to grow. The men start to take note of her beauty while she begins to grow in strength and agility. At the same time, Diana, she's approached by a mysterious stranger claiming to be Steve Trevor. He doesn't really look like him, but after a few words exchanged that only Steve might know, she sees this man as Chris Pine now in face and voice henceforth. This aspect, by the way, will probably require audiences to not think too hard about the fact that an innocent man here whose body is going to be used non-consensually indefinitely for Diana to romance, while also having no family or friends in his own life to notice he's completely changed. It's definitely a plot hole that seems to get bigger the more you think about it. Villainy does soon enter the scene. Pedro Pascal plays Max Lord. He's a TV infomercial con man who has headed this financially failing oil company called Black gold cooperative. He enters the scene and he discovers that they are in possession of the Dreamstone and he's desperate enough at this point of his life to give it a try. He uses his charm on Barbara to get his hands on the piece and then he makes his wish, which is to have the stone's powers. The physical stone disintegrates and now Max has the power to grant anyone a wish, a power that he uses in exchange for the wealth and the power and the fame of anybody else who deals with him directly. However, what the wishmakers don't really know is that there is a catch. Gaining the thing that they desire most means losing the thing of most value that they already possess. And in Barbara's case, that's her kindness, I guess. And in Max's case, I guess it's that he's a good father. And in Diana's case, it's the superpowers that she needs to continue to save the world. And there's the basic setup, I guess, for the rest of the film. Now, if you compare the characters of Wonder Woman to Superman, they're not that far off. They have a lack of physical vulnerability. They're, they do share an outsider status to their society, American society here, and an inherent goodness about them. Wonder Woman, as a character, is not about getting revenge on supervillains so much as trying to make the world a better and safer place for all people. She's more in tune with how humans are living their lives and how they can live better. A good person in Diana's mind is selfless and a bad one is selfish and her vulnerability is not really physical, but she can be hurt emotionally, especially, which is why Steve Trevor's return puts her into a dangerous position in choosing between her personal needs and her desire to help the world. It's important to show that her strength is of her character, not her ability to pummel bad guys into the ground. And like Superman 2, there's a choice here between the personal love of the superhero and the physical power to do greater good. That comes into question. A choice has to be made, and that leads to the main conundrum at the end of the film. Now, if Diana is Superman from the films of the early 1980s, then I guess Steve Trevor takes his traits from another icon in films from that period, Indiana Jones. Like Indiana Jones, Steve Trevor is a man of adventure and resolve, and he's willing to fight to do what's right as part of his duty for the country and humanity as a whole. He does share Diana's sense of right and wrong, and that makes him the perfect choice for her as a potential mate. Godot and Pine, they continue their seemingly effortless chemistry together on the screen that makes their pairing pretty fun to watch, particularly in the man-out-of-time sequences in which Steve marvels at how society has changed from when he was last alive. Kristen Wiig, she does show a good amount of vulnerability as well as the capability for sexiness, in part beyond her comical demeanor. In comics, the character of Cheetah 
which is what she's supposed to be in this film. She's friends with Diana, but she's also very jealous of her. And as with the Superman films, the villains here are depicted as buffoons. They carry a great deal of capacity for harm due to a loss of ethics and morality that brought them to their power. The commentary on the 1980s, you know, this really was the beginning of mass consumerism, the me generation. That's kind of antithetical to Wonder Woman's philosophy of community and sacrifice. Max Lord, who's more emblematic of that me generation, he feels that it, you can never really have enough. Whatever you have, whenever you gain what you want, you always want more. And he resolves that there's no shame in it. What's never said is what all the consumerism and this living to acquire more, regardless of consequence, does to society as a whole. There really isn't enough wealth to go around for one person to be wealthy. Many others are going to be without. For one person to be powerful, many more are going to be losing power. So essentially, Diana is confronting the evil that is our times, or at least the times of the 1980s, that have grown probably even worse today. Everybody wants, and when they have, they want more. Although the makers claim that they patterned the character after Gordon Gecko in Wall Street or Bernie Madoff in, in real life, obviously many people are going to read Donald Trump into the Max Lord character. He's a businessman and TV personality. He markets himself as a success even when he's not, and he parlays the wishes of his cronies and the public at large in need to make him the most powerful person on earth. And he's putting all his chips into greed and consumption, and that also brings forth a rise of this in others, trading their morality in favor of personal gain instead of what's best for their families or their communities. And this is a message that likely would have had much more resonance in this regard if the film were released when it was supposed to be, which was before the 2020 election. Although, realistically, I guess it's still a message that needs to be said, probably for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. But for now... The makers of this film are downplaying how much Trump influenced the development of the character. They'd like you to believe that it wasn't even in their minds, despite the fact that it obviously must have been at some point. And that's likely the position they're going to continue to take while this isn't released, because they don't want to alienate potential audiences with the overt politics of it. Now, the assets are mostly here from the first film. There are fun moments to be had, good action, engaging character performances, a lot here to dazzle the eye. It's entertaining enough, I suppose, to garner a recommendation just for escapism's sake, even if the storytelling issues carry quite a bit of bloat and the overhead here into what might have been a much more compelling streamlined affair. It's no surprise to learn that Warner Brothers execs initially wanted to cut out the two big action set pieces at the start of this film, thinking that it might have helped the film overall, at least in terms of theater showings, which are pretty minimal given the fact that it's debuting also on HBO Max. But without these sequences, I guess people would still complain because there's hardly any action. Otherwise, for most of the first half, it goes for prolonged periods with a mostly talky and romantic affair between Diana and Steve. So that would also carry some issues for modern audiences who expect action to come at pretty regular intervals in their superhero films. Well, I do think that many viewers of Wonder Woman 1984 will likely consider it a failure, at least in terms of continuing the first film's winning formula. I have to say, personally, I do admire the risks that Jenkins here is taking to differentiate this film from not only the previous film, but the other DC Extended Universe films as well. 
I think this is a pretty ambitious superhero film that's in a genre that is growing more difficult to break out of that mold. So at least it was an attempt there. And while its pacing and expository issues are probably too substantial to really proclaim Wonder Woman 1984 a genuinely good film through and through, I do think this is certainly not the kind of movie that deserves to be as maligned as it has been in social media after being released to the public in theaters and on HBO Max, where it debuted because of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. I do think, though, like one of the film's messages here, I think there's more value in seeing the good in others than in pointing out their flaws. So that's why I will say Wonder Woman 1984 has its good moments enough to make it a recommendable film, despite its many substantial narrative flaws. I do think that this film will likely emerge as one of the more underappreciated superhero films of its era, and time will be kinder than people have been of late to it. But for now, I actually am going to recommend it for unescapist entertainment. Don't think too hard about it, or you'll probably find much more to nitpick. I think the intent of the film was, is probably not going to be well-known among people, and they will judge it according to whatever their scale is, and not by the scale of the makers of this film. But I think being somebody who reviews films of the 1980s and who's lived through these films of the 1980s, I even reviewed all of the Superman films on my other podcast, I got pretty early what they were trying to do here, and I was able to appreciate it probably much more than those people who are not in tune with the old films from the 1980s, as perhaps maybe Jenkins and John's. So for that, I'm going to give this film three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think that it's a recommendable film for people who like this kind of movie. And if you like the first Wonder Woman, you're definitely going to give it a try. But I think especially if you like those goofier and kind of more romantic and comedic superhero films from the 1980s that this is trying to emulate, then certainly you're going to get much more mileage than those people who expect a film to be fitting in with the more grim and dark and substantive films that have come out in more recent years. Obviously, this is one of those movies that depends on what you're looking for. But if you're looking for just a good time and some good eye candy and nice performances and colorful characters and that sort of thing, I do think that there is some enjoyment to be had, enough for me to give it three stars out of four. Obviously, this is a movie that really has run the gamut in terms of people's reactions to it. Some people love it, some people hate it, but that's just how social media is nowadays. It's either the best or the worst. There's just no in-between, so people are not giving it three stars. They just rail against it for their own personal reasons, I suppose. But anyway, if you have your own thoughts on Wonder Woman 1984 that you want to impart, you can reach me at my website. Quipster.net is where to go. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram, my email. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and please enjoy your time. Anytime you go to the movies or you're just watching a movie streaming at home.